Hello and welcome. You are listening to Gone Guilty Podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Georgia. And today we're talking about an evil granny, right, Georgia? This is a classic, don't judge a book by its cover. It is, oh, it's an interesting one. I'm excited to hear all about it. I actually watched an episode of a Netflix series on this recently, but I was half asleep and zoning out, so I need to get all the information again. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I watched that one this week as well. It was pretty good. It's well, it is what inspired me to do this episode this week. Um but yeah, we're doing Dorothea Puente, which Dorothea yeah. Puente. Cool. And yes, before we talk about not judging books by their covers, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, so I went for a walk this weekend. It was beautiful, beautiful weather, and we went down to Gower um to walk along the beaches and along the cliffs and things and it was all it was beautiful so he went on for a nice long walk on the way back there was a like a river along the beach and you kind of have to like hop along the steps like the stones to get across but I thought and uh, my boyfriend thought oh we'll just try and hop it and classic Luke he sort of he says to me oh I'll be able to make it, you know, six foot three. I, you probably won't. So sure enough, I'm there like, yeah, I can do this. Like, that's it. If anyone tells me I can't do something, I've I've got to prove it. And <laughs> we, <laughs> so there's this river, there's a, there's a family that is on the other side of the river. And I watched the lady nudge her partner and say, oh, look, she's going to jump it. Okay. I was like, oh God, now there's pressure. So... <laughs> Luke makes it over fine. I, like, take a massive, like, couple steps back, start sprinting, running, jumping. I make it over the river, but then the momentum carries me and I go flying on the floor. (laughs) Bearing in mind, I'm in, like, a bright red jumper. And the family... Right, I think this is what makes it worse. Not only was that incredibly embarrassing, bright red jumper, I felt like everybody saw me. The lady... No one... No one laughed. No one checked if I was okay. They kind of just like looked at each other, just looked at me and just didn't say anything. Like it would have been so much better for me if they like laughed about it or like made, you know, make a joke out of it. It was so much more awkward. Your fail wasn't even noteworthy for them. No, it was as if like nothing happened and they was like, yeah, it was just that dull. But it was pretty impressive. And now like I've got like, massive bruising all over my knee <laughs> it was pretty pretty embarrassing right at the end of the walk it sounds like they were maybe rooting for you to just fall in yeah i think they wanted more like a more impressive like a splash but yeah unfortunately no it was just me like face first in the gr- in the sand <laughs> maybe they thought you'd do a flip yeah yeah i think so <laughs> mm. but yeah so that was my eventful walk but other than that, I've just been busy with coursework. Same old, same old. <laughs> How about you? What have you been up to this week? This week, I ventured home, which was cool. Saw some old friends I haven't seen in a long time. I didn't fall in any streams or wipe out, sadly. But no. oh. Oh, I didn't even go for any walks, which is on the plan for this weekend, if the Welsh weather has a positive turn, because right now it is miserable. Uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, 
this week is kind of my turn to not have done that much that's noteworthy. No catastrophes, no, no? painful accidents, I don't think. That's good. Good. Yeah, sometimes not noteworthy <laughs> is good. Sometimes it's nice to just have a chill one because I really am overdue just chilling out for Taking a weekend. So, yeah, I got some nice plans. I'll go to the market on Sunday. I need to venture into town tomorrow, get some get some football shoes. Ooh. And yeah, that's Check it. Really. That's me. Nice. Yeah. Oh. No news is good news. No news <laughs> is good news, especially around these parts. Yeah. So yeah, shall we, oh, actually, before we jump into the case, <gasps> yes. we did have a milestone this week. We've hit 10,000 listens, which is yeah, it's crazy. very exciting and very crazy, yes. Oh, it's so, so, so good. I can't believe it. 10,000 plays, like, amazing. Amazing. Mm. In just over a year as well, which is... Good innings, I think. A good innings. Yeah, considering you just thought it was going to be friends and family. It's pretty good. <laughs> Definitely. I'll certainly take it. Mm. Uh, but yes, winning stories aside, let's talk about old people that kill. Yeah, let's do it. So, as you know, we're going to be talking about Dorothea today, and she was kind of depicted as this sweet grandmother figure, could do no wrong, and yet that was so, so untrue. She is calculating, she's evil, and a serial killer. So this week we are going back to our roots and we're talking about a serial killer today. (laughs) (laughs) Born Dorothea Gray in Redlands, California, on the 9th of January, 1929. She was the sixth child out of seven, and her home life was very much unstable. Both parents were alcoholics, and in 1937, her father died of tuberculosis. TB was rife back then, I believe. Mm, Yeah, it was. It seemed like everybody got the TB, unfortunately. The TB. By the following year, her mother had lost custody of her children, and her mother actually died later that year in 1938 in a fatal motorbike accident. Wow. Dorothea and her siblings were all sent to an orphanage, where unfortunately she was sexually abused. So her life at home and how she was brought up was very unstable and pretty tragic, really. Definitely a rough start to life. Hmm. When Dorothea was 16 years old, she tried to make a living as a sex worker. However, she decided that marrying a man named Fred McFall might be an alternative option. He'd just returned from the Pacific Theatre in World War II. They had two daughters together, although one daughter she sent to live with a relative and she placed the other daughter in for adoption. Why'd she do that? I'm unsure. It, I didn't see why, but yeah, so she had both daughters, but she sent both of them away. Mm, interesting. Maybe she just wasn't cut mm. out for motherhood. Yeah, she might have just decided it wasn't for her. In the late 1948, Fred left Dorothea 
after she had a miscarriage. So that was the reasoning for him to have left her, and yet she had two children. I I was very confused by that at first, but it was their choice. Yeah, lots of things not adding up there. That's a bit weird that he's left her for that reason. Maybe that was the final straw after she got rid of two other children, but doesn't sound like the miscarriage was her fault, I'm assuming, so... No, exactly. Her crimes began in 1948, when she was arrested for purchasing women accessories using forged checks in Riverside. She pled guilty for her crimes and served four months in jail, which received three years probation. However, once she was released, after six months, Dorothea left Riverside when she was supposed to have stayed for her probation. So I feel like this could be quite telling of how she is already. Certainly quite a confident criminal, it would seem, just wandering away from the probation. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty pretty brazen. Good word. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) In 1952, Dorothea married a merchant seaman named... Axel Johansson, in San Francisco. That's a hell of a name, Axel Johansson. Yeah, I know, it's pretty, pretty strong name, isn't it? Nice, you've got to be cool with a name like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, Axel didn't know Dorothea as Dorothea. She had created a fake persona. Now, I might butcher this name, I'm really sorry. Um... Her new name was Tia Singoala Nirada. Well, I don't think you're going to offend anyone because it sounds like she's just made up a pretty out there name. <laughs> mm, she basically, she claimed that she was Muslim and that she was Egyptian and Israeli descent. But isn't this woman white? Yes. So she has created a completely new person that's, you know, different name, different heritage, different background. And that's how Axel knew her at first. Wow, okay. Yeah, I've heard of a lot of criminals like this that just kind of, what did you say, brazen, brazenly just create new identities so that they can continue to commit crimes. Like the Tinder swindler. Mm, Exactly. I feel like we've been on the con artist uh, track this like last few weeks we have i've kind of kept it going let's keep that wheel rolling (laughs) oh yeah unsurprisingly their marriage wasn't successful it broke down when dorothea took advantage of axel's overseas trips she would gamble with his money and invite men over to her house she even tried to offer sex acts to an undercover police officer wow yeah the whole when the cats away the mice will play sort of sort of deal i think here <laughs> yeah it sounds like she was uh bankrolling a pretty crazy time with his money mm, exactly yeah exactly in 1960 dorothea owned and operated a brothel under the fake bookkeeping firm in sacramento she was arrested for this was she was she still with axel at this time Yes, so they were actually still together at this time. She kind of had this brothel operating under this 
fake firm, bookkeeping firm's name, um, but she didn't get away with it. Uh, She was found guilty and sentenced to 60 days in Sacramento County Jail. One year later, Axel committed Dorothea into DeWitt's State Hospital due to binge drinking, criminal behaviour, lying and suicide attempts. It was here that the doctors diagnosed her with as being a pathological liar and with an unstable personality, which I think we've already seen so far. She definitely sounds pretty unstable. And I think the mm. pathological liar criminal status, pretty fair label right now. Yeah, it rings true for sure. Definitely, with all her personas and things. In 1966, Axel and Dorothea divorce. So that was five years after she was admitted to hospital. Which, yeah, it seemed like Axel stuck around for a while. He's put up with a lot at this point. Yeah. Although, after they were divorced, she decided to operate under Johansson's surname for a while. She would go by Sharon Johansson. So, there you go again, another name. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to keep up with all these personas. I sometimes struggle with my own name. No. (laughs) Yeah. She made herself into a kind Christian woman to shield away from her criminal tendencies. And everyone believed this. She would provide sanctuary for young women who faced poverty or who were abused. And they, she would allow them to live with her without charge. In 1968, Dorothea married Roberto Jose Puente. Although this didn't last long either, 16 months later they separated. Dorothea claimed that the reason for this was due to domestic abuse. Interesting. She's married three times at this point. Yes, she has. Yeah, this is her third marriage. When Dorothea sent the divorce papers, Roberto flew to Mexico, which meant that the divorce wasn't finalised until 1973. Even after the divorce, they continued an on and off relationship until Dorothea filed a restraining order against Roberto in 1975. She decided to keep his surname then for the following 20 or so years, and that is how we know her today as Dorothea Puente. So after this, Dorothea set her sights on a new goal. She bought a boarding house which was located on the 31st and F Street in Sacramento. She created a new persona. This time it was slightly different. At 46 years old, she became a sweet and loving grandmother. Or with the grey hair, the big, like, bottle glasses. She even, like, changed the way that she stood. She would cowl her neck and back down and be this kind of frail, innocent lady. She was really committing to that character. Yeah, you saw on the documentary, didn't you? Where she looks old. She is. She looks old. I was so shocked when. So she was forty six when she started this and like moved into the change. By the time she commits all her crimes, I think she was around late fifties, sixties when she was arrested. But even then, she she could be in her eighties, and I wouldn't have questioned it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She had that kind of old 
shriveled woman look. Yeah. She let her hair grow out and was naturally grey. She would put in like little pin rollers in to have that kind of curl. And yeah, we'll put some photos on our Instagram and you'll see as well. It's it's an impressive transformation. Mm, she really committed to this act, I'm assuming, so that she could commit more crime as a persona that doesn't seem like a criminal. Mm-hmm. I would say so, definitely. She was well known within the community for helping alcoholics, homeless people, people with disabilities, and she would host many AA meetings. She would help sign them up to receive social security benefits, and she was a well-respected pillar of the community through funding charities and scholarships. It's always the pillars of the community you've got to look out for. Oh, it always is. It's those who is, yeah. If ever I come across a pillar of the community, I'm going to be wary. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched too many crime shows. <laughs> she met another fellow, Pedro Angel Montalvo. Although he left after only a one week of marriage. So supposedly she married again. Wow. Four times already. That's impressive. Yeah, but that one I don't think lasts long. Well, it didn't last long. And she kept the previous surname's name. Maybe she preferred how Puente sounded. Maybe, yeah. In 1978... Dorothea was charged and convicted for illegally cashing in 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants at this boarding house. She was given five years probation and was made to pay 4000 in restitution. In April 1982, Ruth Monroe, 53 years old, went to live with Dorothea in the upstairs apartment. However, unfortunately, she died soon after from an overdose of codeine and a concoction of other drugs. Dorothea told the police that she was very depressed as her husband was terminally ill. And so the police ruled this as suicide. This wasn't true. And I don't know if you remember in the documentary how the son actually spoke that her, his mother would never drink alcohol she was very careful with things like that and one day she um walked into the house and she saw that his mum with a drink and he asked her what what was that she's oh don't worry you know dorothea gave me this like drink to help me calm my nerves and relax me and he soon realized that actually he thinks that she was slowly poisoning his mother as this wasn't usually something she would drink at all so it seems as though this could have been the first murder. Did did she ever get formally prosecuted as the murderer? Was that sorry? Was that ever viewed as a murder? Uh, it was viewed as a murder. Um, but we'll. It's a little. It gets a little tricky at the end. Unfortunately, I, I, it seem for me it seems very clear cut. But I think a few people on the jury disagreed. Oh well. Hmm. A few weeks later, Malcolm McKenzie, a 74-year-old pensioner, staying with Dorothea. The police paid a visit when Malcolm reported that Dorothea was stealing from him and drugging him. On the 18th of August 1982, she was convicted of three counts of theft and sentenced to five years in prison. So, 
obviously the drugs situation wasn't brought up then but she keeps going to prison or going on getting probation um for these crimes of theft like it's a repeat occurrence and she's getting caught for it and yet she continues yeah she's a serial criminal and she's not even getting away with it that much (laughs) yeah while she's in prison she developed a pen pal everson gilmouth 77 year old retiree from oregon after serving three years, she was released, and Everson met her at the gate in his red pickup truck. Their relationship seemed to be going well. In November 1985, Dorothea hired Ismail Flores to do some handiwork around her place. She asked him to install some wood panelling into her house, which cost approximately $800. She said, oh, you could just take that red pickup truck if you like instead. As my boyfriend, he lives in Los Angeles and he doesn't need it anymore, which seems to be quite odd. Mm -mm. Yeah. He then, yeah, that's Everson's red pickup truck and he doesn't live in Los Angeles he lives in Oregon so then she asks Ismail if he could build a box for her a 6 by 3 by 2 box which she said she wanted to use to store some books in it once it was built she asked Ismail to come back again if he could help her transport the box to a storage depot but the box was now filled and sealed he agrees. He helps her with his, with her chores. Well, I, I guess, guess to him it just seems like a sweet old granny asking for some manual labour because she couldn't do it. Yeah, I know. It's so yeah. I don't know. It's I. It is. It's that persona. It's that like old sweet grandmother. I can't do anything for myself. I'll help. You know. You yeah, would. you wouldn't suspect. And she's given him. A yeah, car. you wouldn't suspect. And yeah, like you say, she's given yeah. him a whole pickup truck. Yeah. On the way, Dorothea asks Ismail to stop and just just discard the box on the riverside, which was used for fly tipping. Like, there was lots of other people that would do the same thing in this area. On the 1st of January, a local fisherman saw the box and thought that it looked suspiciously like a coffin and decided to call the police. When they looked inside, they found a decomposed and undone an identified body no. of an elderly oh, man. Oh, not Emerson. It was Everson. And it actually took three years to identify him. Dorothea was so calculating. This is so much... Just as if that wasn't worse... Like, as, as if that wasn't bad enough that this sweet man was like, you know, her pen pal helped her and all of this. The... After she murdered him, she would continue to collect his pension and would write letters to his family on his behalf saying that he was ill. So that's why she's writing them. Oh my God. It's awful. Yeah. It's crazy to think that money might have been the motivation for such awful, awful crimes. Mm Mm-hmm. I think with this lady, it was... Power and money. She'd prey on quite vulnerable people. 
and she'd take their money from them. She was still managing the housing arrangement in Sacramento. At this point, she had about 40 tenants. She was well known amongst the social workers in the area and that, you know, she'd take on people that had quite, um, you know, difficult backgrounds. She would take on people that were known to abuse people, drug addicts, alcoholics. Um, She would accept anybody when social workers came her way asking if they could have a room. She would continue to help them with their social security finance. She would pick up the money for them. She'd pocket most of it and then pay them a little bit and say that the rest of it is, you know, for allowing her, you know, allowing them to stay. Sort of like a rent situation. Okay. Yeah. So she'd just take all their money. All all these people. She'd still receive visits from the parole officers. She had been ordered to stay away from elderly people and she was not allowed to handle any government checks. So the social security benefits payments definitely came under this bracket. So she was doing but there were still social workers placing vulnerable people at her household. Because she would change her name so often, like it would just slip under the radar. But these parole officers came over about 15 times and yet there is no... Um, violations on the record she would say when there was those people around that they were all just her friends that they weren't tenants so for the parole officers eyes you know she wasn't doing anything wrong they're just friends but she was highly manipulative Mm. neighbors began to grow suspicious when they saw dorothea ask a local man Known to most people, he was an alcoholic and his name was Chief. He would come round to her house and do odd jobs for her. When he was seen wheeling cartloads of soil from the basement, which was once concrete, they began to grow suspicious because he then filled it back in with a new layer of concrete. Mm, Never a good sign. No, it's not. Basements, concrete, digging in your basement, no. Not many good reasons for doing that. No, there really isn't. Unless you've got damp, then yeah. (laughs) Fair point. Soon after all his jobs were complete, Chief wasn't seen again. So it seems as though he may have been another victim. So it sounds like Chief could have been digging his own grave. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. It seemed, maybe, I mean, very quickly after his jobs that she needed him to do, he definitely was what, you know, he definitely could have been one of her victims. On the 11th of November 1988, the police visited Dorothea at the boarding house regarding a missing person. A tenant named Alvaro Montoya, but he was also commonly known as Bert. Bert had developmental disabilities and also had schizophrenia. His social worker, who really cared for Bert, had grown worried when she hadn't heard from him. 
Dorothea said that he was just visiting family, but the social worker knew this wasn't the case. She recalls that when she visited on behalf of Bert right at the start to check if the place out to see if it was a suitable fit for Bert, Dorothea had a literal box of kittens on her lap. So she's a sweet elderly old lady with kittens, like, you know, so many tenants that she she does great things. She works she does all this charity work. It was very difficult for social workers to disagree. You know, if they had a bad feeling, it's like, well, all of this evidence proves that she's a good person. But she was just playing the game so, so well. This social worker was determined to find out what happened to Bert. So she called the police and informed them, obviously, with what's happening. The first time the police arrived, they found nothing. They then called one of the tenants in to be questioned regarding Dorothea. And he said that she was making me lie for her. Oh, wow. So, yeah. At that point, the police thought, "Mm, there seems to be something up here. Definitely something amiss. With the social worker on their back and this weird questioning that happened, the police decided to return back to the house and look thoroughly through everything. The social worker asked them specifically to go and have a look in the garden. When the police asked Dorothea if they could search the garden, she says, yes, yeah, that's fine. But when they did, they saw disturbed soil. They began to dig and they find a gruesome discovery. Yeah, I remember this from the documentary. Oh, it's... Yeah, go watch the documentary if you haven't as well. It's really good. There's lots of old footage as well of, like, way back when they were discovering all of this. So, unfortunately, when they started digging at the ground, they uncover eight bodies in the garden. They were all tenants of the boarding house. Ruth Monroe, 61. Leona Carpenter, 78. Alvaro, or Bert Montoya, 51. Dorothy Miller, 64. Benjamin Fink, 55. James Gallup, 62. Farrah Faye Martin, 64. And Betty Palmer, 78. Almost all of them had died from an overdose. She would supply them with medication to help them sleep. However, she was slowly poisoning them and sometimes even suffocated them when they were incapacitated. That's awful. So awful. I remember listening to the documentary and I remember them saying at one point that there were victims where she would drug them and they would be basically paralysed, but they could see everything that was happening so she would rob some of these people and she could see that see her robbing the house and they just physically couldn't do anything that just sounds like my worst nightmare so so terrifying yeah that's awful it's like sleep paralysis or something except the demon was a scary old woman yeah yeah exactly i'm pretty sure in like one of the episodes, uh, one of the, have you watched You? No, the series. Okay. No. 
there was there was something similar that happened in that and I don't want to put any spoilers <laughs> but <laughs> I kind of thought that maybe that was that couldn't happen in real life but it does unfortunately I remember the police officer in the documentary talking about doing the digging initially and mistaking oh, body yeah. parts and skin for other things like fabric and oh, yeah it was unpleasant he- he thought that there was piles of leather, but unfortunately, yeah, it was. And I think he described it as like beef jerky, kind of. Mm. Yeah, oh, it's awful. But it was human skin. Yeah, so Gross. awful. How could she's just she's so evil? How was she disposing of the bodies? So she would poison them, kill them. Then she would wrap them in bed sheets and bury them in the pit in the garden. So I guess she would just bring them out at night and pop them in. God. At first, the police didn't suspect the elderly lady to have committed these heinous crimes. She was allowed to roam free. One day, when the police were digging in the garden, Dorothea walked up to a police officer and said, Would it be possible if I could pop to that hotel over there for a coffee? My nephew works there. They were like, sure, because she wasn't a suspect. And even one of the officers happily walked her across the road to the hotel. As soon as he left, though, she fled to Los Angeles. At this point, the police realised that this was her trying to get away. And that she was truly a big time suspect right here. A widespread search was out for her and her picture was everywhere. She decides to visit a bar and befriends an elderly gentleman who recognised her. He contacted the police and she was arrested. Well, thank God he recognised her. God knows what she was planning. I know. I was like, is that a next victim? But also, what I don't get, right, she's so good at, she's made this whole elderly lady kind of character. If she's so good at creating this why didn't she create a new one not that i wanted her to get away with things but if she was so good at changing her appearance maybe she'd done it too long but maybe she thought it would suffice maybe she thought that no one would suspect her still she put, she must have known they were looking for her but maybe she thought in other states that people yeah. wouldn't recognize her. maybe yeah that is true it didn't work evidently no, it didn't. But when she's like so much younger, she could just like dye her hair, change it up, and just be her actual age. And that would be a big transformation. But fortunately, she didn't do that and she was caught pretty swiftly. During her trial, she played on the innocent elderly lady and she would gather many people who gave witness statements claiming how generous and caring she was. A mental health expert testified and said that due to her abusive upbringing, this encouraged her to help people that was less fortunate than her and that the stress of being around all the tenants with the background may have led her to do these things. Which I feel like... Mm, I, I, I don't know. I think she's just evil. <laughs> She sounds pretty evil. Yeah. 
got a pretty evil history. Yeah. I don't think she was encouraged to help anybody. I don't think she was planning... She wasn't helping anyone. <laughs> For the, you know, the good of her heart. No, she was a career criminal. And she committed crime to the end. I don't know anyone... Or I don't know how anyone could claim otherwise. Mm, yeah, exactly. Dorothea murdered nine people. She was a serial killer. However, she was only charged with three murders. The jury couldn't agree, and they were in deadlock 7-5, and it was declared a mistrial. Apparently there were some people on the jury that believed her, her act, I guess, and fell for her charm, and, you know, they could have been the last people that fell for it all, I suppose. She must have been pretty convincing by the end. She'd had a lifetime of practice. Oh, yeah. That is true. She received life without parole, and she claimed throughout that she was innocent. She died of natural causes at 82. She chose people that she knew, which is so sad, she knew that people wouldn't be looking up, looking out for them, and if they went missing, she knew no one would be looking, which is how she got away with it for so long. Mm. So predatory. And thank God that one social worker really cared about her case oh yeah i remember so she's very vocal in this in the documentary and she says that you know she felt so guilty that she allowed him to stay there and but she did all these checks and she you know she thought it was legit but she said that maybe it was she says that maybe because he, he was the cause for all of this to be unravelled. Like, maybe that, you know, he helped her be stopped, but she, yeah, feels so tragically sad about it all. Yeah, maybe it was his purpose. Yeah, that's how she feels, yeah. On a final note, I saw her grandson is pretty weird too. So he claims that he sees her as a human, like, you know, she's my grandmother. And I was like, okay, mm, she is a serial killer. But he is obsessed with serial killers. So he founded Murder Auction, a auction house for serial killer memorabilia. Oh, no. Which he obsesses over. And it's allowed him to befriend... Charles Manson and Richard Ramirez. There's photos of him with Charles Manson. Christ, so this grandson is literally spending his time associating with serial killers. It's so weird. And he said that he's been inundated with requests on her ashes, whether they could whether he could send them. He was like, but that's my limit. I won't go that far. <laughs> you know, I'll keep that's the it. limit. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's the limit. Exactly. So is she, is she know, dead now? She is dead. Yeah. She's 82. She died at 82 of natural causes, but it's, yeah. I wonder if we'll wonder if, you know, is it nature or nurture? Is it, will he grow up to be, 
Well, he's pretty obvious, to be fair. Like, <laughs> it's a weird thing to embrace. You imagine most relatives of serial killers probably want to get away as much as possible from that stuff. Mm. He looks kind of peculiar as well. We might have to pop a photo up on our Instagram. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> of him. Yeah. That is the case of the sweet grandmother, Dorothea. The not so sweet. Dorothea Puente. What an evil, evil woman. So evil. That was a really good case. Thank you, yeah. Thank you for sharing. It was good to get a recap. I really had forgotten pretty much all of those details, other than Bert's and that social worker, because they were a key part of the episode. Yeah. Go and watch that episode as well if you haven't, because that, it really highlights how sweet Bert was and the social worker as well, like what she did to discover this case and to stop her in her tracks. What was it called again? Mm. Um, Neighbours that kill or something? Bad housemate. Um, worst housemates or something. That might be it, yeah. Or was it roommates that kill? Mm. And uh, here we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the worst roommate ever. Worst roommate ever. Yeah, go watch that. I think it's episode one. It is, first it's episode. Very good. But yeah, awesome. well, thank you for listening. I hope hope I did it justice. You did. But, yeah. You did. Uh, it would be good to hear if other listeners have watched that episode on Netflix. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And if they have any more opinions about this case than Dorothea. Do you want to share the social medias so they can let us know? Yeah, sure. So... You can send in your personal stories, true crime or paranormal, to our website, www.growingguiltypodcast.com. You can also send them on our email, growingguiltypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on our Instagram and our Twitter, where we share photos from the case and kind of interact with you guys at growingguiltypodcast and at Goring Guilty for our Twitter. If you like this episode, please let us know. Send in a review and some stars. That'd be great. And yeah, we hope you enjoyed. And remember, we won't judge if... Gore is your guilty pleasure. Woo! Thanks Bye, all. guys. Bye.